0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big
1: interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: The 44th Parliament is getting underway in the next couple of weeks. Another sign that things are gearing up in Ottawa. The opposition is getting ready. Erin O'Toole announced the Conservative shadow cabinet yesterday. So let's find out all about it. Joining us now to talk about it is David Aiken, Global National's Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David
1: morning simmy how you doing
2: good thank you so who's in who's out
1: well you know what i might actually start with the who's out there are some important things to talk about who's in but who's out are some some people you might have thought it would have been in but these people have what i'd say views about vaccines that are outside the mainstream so who's out Leslin lewis and conservatives may remember Leslin lewis got the most votes of any candidate on the first ballot in the conservative leadership race. She went on to finish third. Uh, Erin O'Toole, of course, would win that race. Um, But she's very popular with the conservatives, uh, socially conservative base, the evangelicals. She's won herself. She's not in the shadow cabinet. And uh, I think that uh, that surprised people. And I think one of the reasons is she has voiced um, questions uh, about the effectiveness of vaccines, that they may not work properly. And that's caused Erin O'Toole some headaches. And she's not the only one. Marilyn Gladue, who was the health critic or in the shadow cabinet for health under Andrew Scheer, she's not anywhere on the front bench with Erin O'Toole. And why? Because in the weekend, she was making some comments suggesting COVID wasn't that serious and vaccines may work. She apologized for those comments yesterday and retracted them, but she is not going to be on the front bench. So those are two women who... You you know if you get to be a shadow cabinet uh, opposition on the opposition, you show up on a lot of the political talk shows. We chase after them for the common on their right. particular subject matter, but not for Lewis and not for uh, Gladue. So those are a couple that are out. In in your neck of the woods, Ed Fast from Abbotsford, he's going to be the uh, industry Canada critic. So he'll be facing off against Quebec's Francois Philippe Champagne. Pierre Paulyev is back as finance critic. O'Toole had taken him out of that job. You know, at the end of the last parliament, a lot of people said why? Because you know, whatever you might think about Pauliev, he really gets under the liberal skin. He's a very effective uh, critic, and so he's back uh, as the finance critic. And I think a lot of conservatives were pleased about that. And then another, I think another sort of interesting matchup: uh, Calgary MP Michelle Rempel Garner is going to be the natural resources critic. So she's, you know, uh, she she put a statement out yesterday. You know, yes, she's all about transitioning to a low-carbon, clean energy economy, but She's certainly going to make sure that she's got the interests of the oil and gas business in Alberta and in B.C. in her mind. And she then matches up on the new natural resources minister, and that would be North Vancouver's John Wilkinson. So those are a couple of the key posts that I think are going to be interesting. Michelle ruppel I think, is an effective opposition critic, too. And uh, John Wilkinson it, it is very capable on the floor of the House of Commons. He's a smart guy, and he has a very important file in natural resources he moved over from environment to natural resources and so now he's got essentially the money natural resources has a lot of money to do a lot of the stuff that he wants to do to get us to uh, net zero in uh, the next couple of decades
2: okay so that's interesting but that sounds also like quite a few high profile female conservative mps who got left out so what is the balance like in that shadow cabinet
1: the balance so there's there's what we call senior house leadership so these are positions like the deputy leader the the government house leader the whip They're and they're really the inner core of uh any leader's office the the the, you know they're they're corralling mps and then there's the rest of the shadow cabinet and the shadow cabinet itself is huge and it's pretty gender balanced but inside that as they say that close circle of advisors there's really only one woman, and that is the deputy leader, and that's Candace Bergen from Manitoba. She had been O'Toole's deputy leader before, um, and that uh, she's a very effective parliamentarian, so she's staying in her job. But the rest of the, the gang, as I say, the house leader, the whip, the deputy whip, the caucus liaison, they're all fellas. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. They're all capable of their jobs. Are there other mm-hmm. women who might have wanted the job? You know, we'll see. I mean, uh, O'Toole did answer O'Toole's the questions O'Toole was getting about this yesterday, and there were lots of them, mostly on the vaccine skeptics inside his caucus. Um, there's about five of them. And uh, and they're, as I say, they're causing O'Toole some political headaches. And then he got questions about, you know, well, why did you drop O'Toole in the, or why did you drop Paul Yev in the first place? And, you know, things like that really didn't get around to the gender balance in his right. sort of inner circle.
2: Also, those aren't really the kinds of questions that the opposition leader wants when you're trying to probably right. take some shots right at the at the liberal government right now.
1: Absolutely. And so so this is this vaccine skeptic issue has been dogging O'Toole. well, it dogged him during the campaign because, remember, he yes. refused to say whether it was mandatory for the conservative candidates to be vaccinated and it's dogged him now. And, uh, and, and the, the reason is now is you have some MPs very publicly uh, as I say, raising vaccine hesitancy issues. One of those MPs, he's an Ontario MP, his name's Dean Allison. Yeah, he's been around for a long time. He has sponsored two e-petitions yeah, that are right now before the House of Commons. And this is the way we do petitions these days, is if you have an issue, an MP puts it on essentially the digital floor of the House of Commons, and you can sign it. And they, they, these e-petitions stay open for people to sign for a few months, and then they're formally tabled and the government can consider them. So they're important things, so The important way for individual Canadians to register a concern about an issue. So Dean Allison has sponsored two petitions. One is pushing ivermectin, uh, saying mm. we demand that we get ivermectin for COVID. And of course, Health Canada has declared that to be dangerous. Uh, you should not use ivermectin. But Dean Allison is out there with his name behind that, pushing it. Uh, the, the second one he's got his name on, he says that uh, the, the, the petition asserts that vaccines are not safe and are not proven safe. And of course, we know they are proven safe. And then he says vac- all or this petition says vaccine passports should be banned. I mentioned Abbotsf- Abbotsford's Ed Fast. Mm-hmm. Fast has also got his name on a petition that he's sponsoring that also calls for the ban of vaccine passports. But officially, you know the Conservative Party is on board with vaccine passports, but you've got this noisy rump of Conservative MPs that that are raising vaccine hesitancy questions. O'Toole, O'Toole says his caucus will deal with this next week. He thinks it should be an internal matter. Fair enough, but you've got some caucus members very publicly, as they say, raising these issues around vaccine hesitancy, and no other MPs that I can find, no Liberal, no New Democrat. No green has voiced similar concerns about vaccine mandates, vaccine passports or vaccines themselves. It's just the conservatives.
2: Wow, it's going to be an interesting session. David, thank
1: you. Hey, no problem, Simi. Have a great morning.
2: Well, coming up, of course, with Von Palmer, we are going to be talking about vaccination, the mandate to get vaccinated for healthcare workers and how it's still a struggle for about the 3000 healthcare workers in the province who still have not done so. Other countries face a similar situation with their vaccine mandates, and some are taking a very different tactic to deal with that. Our Raji Sohal with us this morning to talk about that. Good morning.
3: Good morning, Simi. Yeah. um, So if you look at Singapore, they are the ones doing something quite uh, drastic. So they were in a similar situation as us where they had high double vaccination rate. They did that targeted rollout like we did where they first went for seniors and then healthcare workers, taxi drivers, that kind of thing. But there's still a lot of people refusing. And the ones refusing there are actually the elderly. The ones that would really get sick. Yeah, here's a clip from Sky News about that.
4: It, it's been an impressive rollout. It's something that Singapore is very good at. The only sticking point has been that a lot of elderly people here are refusing to be vaccinated. Now, the government is struggling to know what to do with them. They have tried to restrict unvaccinated people. So, for example, if you're unvaccinated now, you can't go to a shopping mall, you can't go to a restaurant, you won't be able to travel. Um, There's a lot of testing requirements placed on you. But for a lot of elderly people who, you know, they won't travel very much, they won't go to restaurants, um, that isn't going to put them off too much. And you do have to think that unless vaccines are mandated, then we're still going to see a large proportion of elderly people unvaccinated. And unfortunately, they are the people who are predominantly ending up in hospital and dying
2: Okay, so so, that's where Singapore is bringing down the hammer then.
3: Yes, they are going to stop covering the medical bills of unvaccinated COVID-19 patients, which has people elsewhere going, hmm. Is that what we should be doing too? Because uh, we just heard in that clip how challenging it is to to motivate those who are unvaccinated to just go get the jab and restricting services for the elderly who are unvaccinated hasn't <sighs> had an impact there because they're just like, well, we didn't go out much before anyway, so we just con- will continue to not go out. Um, but now if you're elderly in Singapore and you get sick, Singapore government is not going to cover your medical bills. So they're hoping that's going to help uh, turn the tide with the unvaccinated.
2: Boy, that is such a, um, what a leap that is, right? Because that's such a slippery slope because then where do you draw the line after that? If you're committed to an open kind of universal Medicare system and then you say, no, no, you can't get it if you do this, then what about people who still smoke? What about like, where do you draw the line on that?
3: Yeah, on Twitter I saw just a storm around this. So because a lot of Canadians also do feel the same. Um, I know government officials have said we would never go that way, um, but I do see how it would motivate the unvaccinated for fear of you know going into massive debt, for example, if you can't pay your your bills if you are unvaccinated. But in the states, Simi, mean, a lot of people don't have uh, medical coverage. Okay, and then when they get sick, they have to pay for that somehow. So I was thinking, there surely are people in the States who are unvaccinated and take that risk knowing that I if guess. they got sick, yeah, they would be footing the bills. So it, maybe it wouldn't motivate everyone to go that way, but you're right. Like, where do you draw the line? You could say, oh, if you smoke and you get sick, you should cover your own medical bills. Or if you ride a motorcycle and don't wear a helmet and get hurt, that that's on you. Um, there, It's just too much of a slippery slope. I, I, I so. personally don't want to see something like that happen here.
2: I was really surprised to even hear about this, that Singapore would take that leap. Remember when they had the healthcare protests in front of the hospital, Raji, and everybody got very very upset. And I think Ooh, yeah. one of yeah. one of the things that I know was really upsetting is this idea that if you're not going to take the advice of healthcare professionals, then why do you run to healthcare professionals when you get sick? Right? <laughs>
3: it's, a, it's a million dollar question, Simi. Yeah. I, that's I mean, what, that's some what people what it, are not thinking these things through, right?
2: Yeah. So you won't, you won't do it for the doctors to prevent yourself from going to the hospital. But if you get COVID, you get sick, you're still going to rush to that same hospital to be treated. So Singapore, I wonder if this is just like, they're hoping it'll be a scare tactic, like it'll be enough to get this last group vaccinated.
3: Yeah, I have no idea what medical bills there would run for, but um, I mean, the elderly... Can get sick so much quicker, so much more easily, uh, have so many more complications, and then, of course, as we know with COVID nineteen, when someone falls ill with it, uh, you know they don't get the loving care and presence of their family; they they're isolated, which is just a, a rotten way to be ill. Um, so. I am so curious to see how much uh, this is going to kind of spread as an idea elsewhere.
2: Oh, yeah, me too. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. Fascinating discussion. Like, what do you think of what Singapore is doing? You can weigh in simi at cknw.com.
0: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code Pod. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. And
3: today is an example of how rapidly we are implementing these historic this historic spending on mental health and addictions. Today we are opening 10 specialized Adult Substance Use Beds here at Phoenix
2: Society in Surrey. All right, that is Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction Services. So 10 new beds, okay, great announcement. But take a look at the numbers. BC Coroner Service saying that in the month of August, 181 people died. And in September, it was 152. And these are deaths from sus- suspected illicit drug toxicity. Record figures for both those months. For the first nine months of 2021, that brings the total number of fatalities to 1,534. So some of these measures that are being introduced by the government, I'm certainly welcome. Yes, let's do this. But is it enough? Joining us now is Guy Felicella, who's a harm reduction advocate, someone who knows what he's talking about. He's overcome drug addiction. Guy, thanks for being back with us.
4: Uh, Thanks for having me, Simi.
2: I know we keep having you on, and we keep talking about these record numbers. Why is nothing changing?
4: Well, I mean, you haven't really done much to, to you know, address the coroner's report each month. I think there's, there's a lot of things that are announced on that report, but nothing gets implemented. And I think, you know, for me, the direct response would be uh, to address the illicit drug supply that's killing people um, and, you know, get those, um, those amount of deaths down. Uh, if you look from basically, you know, the 90s up until about 2012, the deaths per year were between, you know, 200 to 250. Um, and we're way above that just eight years later. And and how far can we actually go by, you know, continuing to put, you know, little patches of Band-Aids here and there before um, it even increases? Yeah, it's at between five to six now, but, you know, that'll continue to rise if we don't actually address the root causes of that which is the illicit drug supply, and try to remove people from that market.
2: I guess, Guy, the thing that gets me is that we've talked about, we know it's toxic drugs, right? We've known it's toxic drugs for the last few years.
4: Yeah, yeah, well, you know what it is, too, Sydney, is that people just don't know what they're consuming anymore. Um, And when you're struggling with, you know, substances, or you have a substance use disorder, and even if you're just not, and just, uh, you know, a a once-in-a-while drug user, Um, which is extremely high risk now, Um, you don't expect to, you know, purchase a batch that's going to kill you. And, you know, I know a lot of society always says to me, well, then why do they why do they do it? It's just I I said, well, you know, because people drugs, you know, help people. Um, So you have to really look at, you know, why do people use drugs and why do they work? Um, Because really, our society, there's majority of us are using some form of some drug.
2: Yeah, I guess it's also that relationship that people have. I think too with the person that they buy from, right? Like for some reason they trust that person, but that person is not the one who actually made those drugs.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you just you know the government has absolutely no control over the illicit drug market. And there's your there's your problem, and you can't take control over that market. So what do you do? You compete with it, I guess. You you look at making and creating a domestic supply of of heroin um through a pharmaceutical company uh, and then you have people access it outside of the medical model. Uh if you could do that and which you could um there are certain regulations that could be amended for that to happen. If that were to happen, you would have many people accessing those facilities and essentially save a lot of lives.
2: Right. And BC's talked a lot about, you know, selling safer drugs getting permission from the federal government to do that. Like do you think we're on the right track?
4: Well, definitely in the category of people who are already actively using substances, yes, for sure. That is, that is one, uh, I think, the most urgently needed response right now. And then also, too, you have to look at, you know, it's great that, you know, you have 10 extra treatment beds. Uh, for people but uh, my concern is is that a lot of times what happens is that people go into detox now because of the toxic drugs that have benzos they have to go to a medical detox which you stay in seven to nine days and then if you do want to go to treatment there's a three-week wait list to get into a treatment facility so if you don't have a place to stay you're actually expected to go back to a shelter and then try to white knuckle it for three weeks before you go into treatment that just that's just not not right. feasible for people. And it's, it, it's really dehumanizing um, that for addiction services, that, that access is just not available.
2: I also wonder too, how does that system that you just described there, how do we still deal with though, the recreational user who is also dying from this?
4: Yeah, you, you know what? They're, for them, they don't even have the options. So basically the safer supply that you hear in our society today is is really... Exists for you know people who have a substance use disorder, but I also want to say is that everybody that has a substance use disorder in this province can't access safer drugs either. So they they have to still access the illicit drug supply. We just have not uh, the medical model has not met the need or demand of people who use substances in our province, and that's why we'll continue to see you know the same alarming amount of deaths each month, and then you know, eventually. Um, you know, more people will be exposed to this. And before you know it, either you know somebody now or somebody, your family member, a friend, will either, you know, overdose and die or struggle with an addiction one day. Uh,
2: You know, I know that there's also a lot of, we talk about the addiction aspect of this too. We were recently talking about, you know, getting construction workers in the construction industry who have substance use issues, getting them help. Like, are we broadening it out enough, Guy, to reach those people who are also affected by this?
4: No, I don't. I don't believe so. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done at looking at the whole structure. I think the way it is right now and the challenges to access services, it's just and with the toxic drug supply, which is increasing even more people uh, struggling with addiction. So the way it's going right now, it's just layer after layer after layer. And we're, you know, it's, it's not happened just before COVID. I think this is the lack of urgency that was addressed from the 90s all the way up through the 2000s. And in 2016, it was a public health crisis. There was no COVID. So how can you explain the amount of deaths in 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019 before COVID even actually came? This is the progression that we're on. And this will continue to increase until we actually um, change drug policy laws and actually help people and meet them really where they're at and give them the ability to, um, you know, have access to not only safer substances, but also if they struggle with a substance use disorder, to have access to treatment services.
2: Right. Guy, thanks so much for your time on this.
4: Oh, thanks for having me, so have a great.
0: A lot of um, government sectors makes an assumption that everyone uses technology, but that's not true. Not everyone depends on digital technology or prefers to use digital technology. So it's creating this digital divide, and COVID uh, has exacerbated that, and which is creating a lot of disparity amongst seniors.
2: Okay, that's Hannah Shin. Hannah is a community-based researcher at SFU's Science and Technology for Aging Research Institute. So she's talking about the assumptions here that we're making that everybody can access, you know, the rollout of the vaccine card, even though for the vast majority of people, it's kind of, it's a digital thing. It's on the smartphone. So that team, that research team, spoke with more than 500 seniors, and they found that the province didn't do enough consulting with seniors and seniors advocates before implementing this proof of vaccination requirement to make sure that they could access it adequately and that they felt comfortable with it. To talk more about this, uh, Isabel McKenzie joins us now, BC seniors advocate. Isabel, thanks for being back with us.
5: My pleasure. Good morning.
2: How much do you think this has impacted seniors out there?
5: Well, I think there has been an impact. This is But one example of areas where uh, the majority of British Columbians use smartphone technology uh, and so governments use that as the, the way to communicate, but it disenfranchises the people who don't have that technology and disproportionately that is seniors. While many seniors are very tech savvy, uh, we know that proportionately more or uh, a greater number of uh, non-technology-savvy people are seniors.
2: But this is an ongoing issue too, though, isn't it, Isabel? Because we know this is what contributes to the isolation, I think, that some seniors feel.
5: It does. Now, there is a mechanism for them to receive their vaccine passport, a, a printed copy of it. So you don't technically need to have a smartphone phone. In order to have a vaccine passport, you can print one off. Um, I think the issue is initially it was complicated. Um, There were some challenges with, you know, doing the the screen grab and the photo of the vaccine passport for all of us who, who downloaded our vaccine passport. And it is a bit challenging, more challenging, I think, for seniors some of whom have to get help with getting the the printed copy of their vaccine passport. So uh, then there is a number they can call, and and the person on the other end of the phone will uh, be able to produce that vaccine passport and send it to them if that's what they need. But I think this is uh, uh, symptomatic of a bigger issue out there, which is this, I think the term is digital divide, that is leaving people stranded who don't have this technology, and that is disproportionately affecting seniors.
2: You know, using the digital divide, that's a good example. But I don't think it's just seniors we're talking about here, Isabel, because that's a good example. But there are people who are younger than that, too, who feel like technology is making, I think, a lot of leaps and bounds right now because of the pandemic. And maybe we're not all comfortable with how much that's happening.
5: That's true. It is not. It's not just seniors. As I say, proportionately, it, they are more impacted. One of the things that we also have to remember are costs. So you know, we we go around thinking, oh, everybody has a smartphone and everybody has an internet connection. That's not necessarily so. Uh, particularly for seniors, uh, more uh, seniors are low income than other parts of the population. And that monthly cost of the Internet connection uh, is very high and many seniors simply can't afford it. And it became an issue when we closed our senior centers and libraries and places where they might go to get that Internet for free is when we understood, okay, uh, part of the digital divide, frankly, is the cost uh, that is imposed on some people.
2: Right. And there is a phone option, right? There was a phone option provided for vaccine card registration. And according to this SFU research, the vast majority of seniors who they talked to were actually using that physical option to access this. Does that surprise you?
5: No, because we know when we look at even the people who contact my office, Sydney, that, you know, 80% plus of the contacts are by phone. When we talk to uh, service providers like the BC housing who provide the shelter aid for elderly renter grant or social development around the senior supplement. We know that phone is still for actually the majority of seniors, uh, particularly older seniors, those 80 plus, that's still the way they contact people uh, by picking up the phone and, and speaking to somebody directly.
2: Does it concern you at all that we seem to be moving in this direction where it's becoming necessary, it feels like, to be able to, 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 have to do regular things in society, but you have to have a smartphone.
5: It is concerning, uh, and we've raised this issue on a variety of fronts, whether it's you have to receive your uh, hydro bill only electronically or only pay it electronically, or you impose a financial penalty on those who still want paper copies of things. I think, you know, the goal is to push people as much as possible to uh, paperless. That's a good goal. But one of the unintended consequences is it's leaving behind the people for whom it's actually not a choice to have a paper copy. It's not a choice to phone in and uh, speak to somebody. It is their only option. And we need to remember that. And it's going to become more of a problem, actually, Simi, as more of us become tech savvy, because as with all things, it's when you're the minority that you're at greatest risk of being forgotten. And that's what is happening increasingly in this digital divide world we live in.
2: Do you think things will get better once we ease out of the pandemic? Like, can we go back to the libraries? Can seniors start using those facilities again? Will that improve things, do you think?
5: A little bit. I mean, libraries... Are open now. Um, they they were slow to reopen, but but for the most part are open now. I think the bigger question that has been needs to be answered and and sort of was revealed by COVID is uh, what about these seniors who are at home without technology who may find themselves increasingly less able to get to the library or the senior center, and they're out of contact if they can't leave their home because they don't have the connection. The, the, the financial piece is the easier piece to solve in reality. The more difficult piece is just simply uh, the mechanics and the ability to engage digitally is not there for everybody. And so, how are we going to ensure that those who are not able to do it are not left behind?
2: This is a good lesson for all levels of government, though, isn't it? Because, like, even trying to access your local municipal government these days, it feels like it's all just being pushed online. It's
5: online. It is. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned local government. We've got a case in my office right now where we moved the homeowner grant uh, to an online um, application process and and moved it away from local government and we have a case of a woman who simply paid her uh, property taxes like she has every year with her homeowner grant and her senior's discount and found that she didn't apply online for the the exemption and has been hit with a, a surcharge and we'll get that sorted out but it is an example of at every step, don't forget, it doesn't matter if the majority of people do something, it's never 100% of the people. And our job is to make sure that that minority of people are protected and not left behind and disenfranchised from core government services.
2: That's a good reminder. Isabel, thank you for your time. My pleasure. All right, let's check in with our show contributor, Raji Solhal now, because we're talking about the border reopening this week. Uh, We thought a lot of people were going to head down to Blaine. I'm sure a few people did, but Raji, you've been checking in with some businesses down there, including one that is 100% reliant on Canadians.
3: Yeah, it's a parcel and packages receiving company. So basically lots of Canadians order things from the States because they get better prices and you still have to declare what you buy at the border crossing, but often the prices are still worth it. So I talked to Steve of Hoggins of Blaine. His mom started the company in 1977 and during the pandemic, you know, at the beginning, especially online sales of goods went way up as we know, and their service was in great demand until the border closed. And that almost crushed Steve's business.
0: We average about 4,500 packages in the facility on any given day. Uh, Holiday time, obviously, it gets quite a bit more.
3: And over the last year and a half, you have continued to receive packages. Yes. Obviously, you're not getting the customers to pick them up. So what did you do with all the shipments you received over that time?
0: Well, fortunately, um, we do have three buildings. And in the past, during the holiday time, we, we fill up all three buildings. And so we have had the space. Uh, we are pretty much bursting at the seams. But we have the, had the facilities to, to receive all of them. Our packages went from 600 to 1,000 a day to about 100 a day or 50, 50 to 100 a day. And that's not too much. However, when you only have maybe 10 going out a day, that's a little that can that can be rough after time because we do have uh, businesses are allowed to cross so we have mm-hmm. we have about 10 to 15 customers we use 600 to 700 customers a day to about two or three a day of 15 customers that could come in
3: Simi, that is a huge decrease. Obviously, so he had to uh, really change how they do things. They had to uh, shift the business model, losing a lot of employees, laying people off. But Simi, you would not believe the things that they've been holding for BC buyers. Um, like, there were example- a
0: few tough times. the The reality is, is it's not it's not like we're a grocery store where we could kind of just shut the thing down and then just you know figure it out from there. We have customers packages, you know, so um, we're being they're trusting us to keep their packages. So I really never felt like um, I I could just kind of walk away ever.
3: So, Simi, uh, Steve had to take up a new job once it looked like the border closure was going to be a long one, as it has. Um, So all those packages that are waiting for B.C. folks, he kept them What like, yeah, car racing parts. Hundreds of tires, Simi. It's popular for tires. It's a popular service for furniture for BC residents. And these are mostly personal use. These aren't like businesses buying things in bulk by any means. People will choose to outfit their homes, uh, just buying stuff online, stuff that they prefer that's uh, from the States. And then they send it to this facility and they Um, bring it back over the border. And even after you pay duties, it's uh, often in many cases, it's cheaper. So they are holding all these things for Canadians, for BC residents. And he said it's been going slow. Business has been obviously very slow Um, this week. They were hoping for, you know, droves of Canadians to show up and it didn't exactly happen, but uh, they are hoping that's going to change.
0: Unfortunately, our bills haven't stopped coming in, but up to uh, up to November, We hadn't been charging anything extra to our customers and we had actually hit a point where we had to charge a little bit extra. So um, they've been, they've been pretty kind about it, realizing that, you know, we we have stored their, their packages for 18 months for free. So
2: (laughs) I'm astounded by that, Raji. I'm absolutely astounded that he kept all that for free and even took another job to make this happen. Like there's a lot of people out there who owe him a debt of gratitude,
3: Yeah, he made a huge sacrifice for uh, customers that are basically Canadian. Canadian customers are the ones that keep his business going. So he mentioned that uh, he is going to have to start charging a very tiny fee. You want to know what that fee is? $1 per month. What? $1 per month. How is he making
2: any money?
3: I don't understand. This this cheerful Steve is not making uh, any money on this right now. He's just hoping that now that the border has reopened, but especially he's really hoping for that PCR test uh, rule to change because he knows that's what's holding people back. Um, You know, again, Simi, at $1 a month, I don't think that people are going to be racing back necessarily. Um, They won't be demotivated. Yeah, well, he's doing I feel a big service to a lot of people a lot of uh, Canadian residents. So he's hoping that Canadians come back for Christmas goodies, uh, because people are shopping online for those things right now. But we're also hearing about these uh, supply issues that are happening. So I wonder how much that's going to affect the business too.
2: I think he's absolutely remarkable for just holding on to the stuff because I've been wondering about this, too, because there's a lot of places like Steve's, right, that people send their packages to. And I'd heard some of them, like, I I was wondering, well, what did they do with all the packages? If you're saying that we're only going to hold them for a month or two and then we're getting rid of them, well, I'm sure some places are not as generous as Steve is.
3: Yeah, I have heard stories of other places that uh, have not been anywhere near as generous. uh, Charging more or um, giving people a limit on how long that they would hold it for is is, uh, typical for some policies. Um, But some of these items, like I mentioned, are just they're huge, right? Like furniture. (laughs) But he has the space still to hold all these packages, which is pretty incredible. and he's just so loyal to his customers yeah. but his business relies 100% on Canadians crossing that border um and you know although i did sense disappointment in his voice over the fact that we haven't been coming over in droves yet he's he's pretty um hopeful that that's going to change soon so we're all watching to see, Simi, when that PCR test uh, is no longer required. And and then can I you think imagine? we can see those droves. Yeah,
2: I was going to say, can you imagine <gasps> the lineups at Steve's place that are going to happen when that requirement okay. is lifted and everybody's going to go down there to go and get all the packages and things that they have been waiting for them for two years? I'm thinking if you're Canada Customs at that point, there's, you're gonna, a lot of people are going to have to line up inside to pay the duty on these items that they, they're they yeah. bringing back, right?
3: Yeah, no kidding. And the other thing with this is, you know, we are so focused on this side of the border with what supports our government has provided. And I mean, relatively speaking, like when we compare um, business supports in BC and in Canada to the ones happening across the border, there is so much more available to business owners here that that has been available um, over the pandemic. And in the States, there, there are far fewer supports um, but uh, he was still pretty um, happy about the grants that he had received, um, but I believe that he said those are dwindling down I'll now, bet. so really counting on um, Canadian customers to come back and pick up those packages. Uh, what's the name of the company again? It's called Hagen's of Blaine, H-A-G-E-N, and it's been around since 1977. Steve took see the why. business over from his mom, and he said there was no chance that he was going to shut the doors, uh, no matter what it took. And yeah, you heard that he took up another job and had to unfortunately lay off employees hoping to bring those employees back though. So
2: I hope so too. Oh, wow, what a guy. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That's amazing. That's our Raji Soho with the story of a parcel company in Blaine that has been holding your package for two years and not charging you. I think that is amazing in this day and age. If you want to weigh in Simi at cknw.com.